From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Charles Beery... uh fill-in celebrity producer man has no regard for where we're at in our personal conversations. He's a slave to the clock. The clock tolls, the bell tolls, and he starts the show whether we're ready to start the show or not. Yeah, some Jack told him to do that, and I don't know yeah. what Jack that was. It couldn't have been even, you, of course, no, but somebody else Somebody clearly. else told him to be Welcome to AWTN's Open Line Friday. You hear our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, and uh, you've heard about our celebrity producer extraordinaire fill-in person, Charles Beery, who is in today for Michael McCall. Michael McCall, big big day off for Michael McCall as uh, as his number one son started kindergarten today. So that's a milestone. I don't know if that that's going to be harder on the son or if it's going to be harder on. Michael and Alicia, that's kind of up in the air at this point, but keep the whole family, the whole McCall family in your prayers. If you'd like to be part of the program, grab one of these open lines. Still have a couple of them at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 if you're outside the United States and Canada. Um, that number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, the aforementioned Charles Beery, producing the program today. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, you've already heard from him, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, I think, all things considered. Michael P. is watching us on YouTube today, and he says, Congratulations, Colin Donovan. You have your your uh, credentials from the Pontifical Marian Academy finally came to roost here in Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama. They started their long journey in 2018, <laughs> and pandemic and logistics issues and whatever you want to attribute it to held them up, but you are uh, officially now a member of the Academy. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And uh, I've, you know, as I, I noted in, in, of course, a couple of interviews already on the subject that I've already participated in a Congress of, of the Pontifical Academy through Zoom in the midst of COVID. Um, and that was maybe my first formal introduction to the community of theologians and, and other devotees of Our Lady who are seriously involved in promoting teaching about her and devotion to her uh, throughout the church. But uh, I'm very grateful, as I've said on a number of occasions already, to the Holy Father for the appointment of obviously the Academy itself that uh, through whom it was requested and given, um, the um, uh, 
and Mother Angelica for hiring me because certainly there there is a pathway by which we get to any goal, whether it's parenthood or a job or a vocation. And we could see, if we look carefully, we see the hand of God in that, and I certainly see that in, in my case. It couldn't have happened without Mother and, and her mission to, you know, to teach the faith and to spread the, the love of Jesus in the church. We had a nice little ceremony within the context of the Daily Mass last Wednesday where Bishop Reka, the Bishop of the Diocese of Birmingham and Alabama, presented you with those credentials. And he made a really interesting point, uh, Colin, that I, I think that th- this goes beyond just you, but any mm-hmm. situation like this. You know, he said not only is it a big deal for you and not only is it a big deal for uh, the network and, and all of us here at EWTM, but it's a big deal for the diocese, too. You know, that that's right. He's... You know, he is our spiritual father uh, for this group of the people of God, as as uh, is often said in canon law and other documents. He is the, you know, he is the apostle who oversees this portion of the people of God. And so uh, I was hoping he would be able to do this, and it was finally uh, possible to get on his schedule, and I'm so grateful that he took the time to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's true that, the, the good that we do and, and the evil. We look at the evil of the, of the scandals uh, in the church or, or even in government or in any institution. They reflect on the whole. And so I think the whole can be grateful for uh, the good that happens and the honors that are received as well as uh, concerned about and repentant for the, the bad that is done, the evils that is done. And I think this characterizes human life where we know there's a mixture of good and evil. Uh, the church is a hospital for the sick, as the, the Pope has said on a number of occasions. And so uh, we serve with all of our weaknesses of, of fallen nature, uh, but also all the opportunities of grace which and, and the wisdom of, of the ages that's uh, possessed by the church and being able to spread that to others. And that's... Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity that myself and you and our producers and everybody who works here uh, participate in, even the groundskeepers and the housekeepers who, who maintain things in such beautiful order. Whatever their role is, uh, they're contributing to the mission. We have emails here from listeners who could care less which pontifical academies you belong to. <laughs> they just want answers to their questions. Lisa writes, fair. Lisa writes in, what is the purpose of doing penance after confession? Well, the, the purpose is that we understand that the Lord has forgiven us and united to him. We are united to him. But we also realize that the offense against God is in, in some ways infinite. A serious sin, for example, is an infinite offense against God. And that's the essential reason why only the God-man could restore the relationship between the, between the Father and the creation, principally man. And so... That's, that's the basis of it. So we are absolved, and in the thoroughness of our contrition, we can actually f- be, f- be delivered from any of the consequences in terms of the, the guilt of sin, this temporality in which we exist, and the consequences of that, coming out of the confessional. But we can't often know that that's true because we go into most things with mixed motives, and so we ought to have that motive of, uh, of thorough contrition, but even if it's imperfect, the church says we are absolved. So the things that we do by way of the pen, the penance, meager as it is asked of us after conf- after confession, 
and by following the penitential laws of the church. These are certainly little things, and we can go beyond that, as the children of Fatima did, to do other, other penances for ourselves and reparation for those who don't do penance. And I think that when we understand that although love perfects, there is an order of justice which must also be brought into play uh, that is perfected by love. And we contribute to that order of justice by doing, doing penance for our sinfulness. Have you been to Mexico City? I have been, yes. Maria wants to know, is it true that some of the stars and other aspects are painted onto the tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe? Uh, I think there is some adornment on there, but I've also heard that there are, is some imagery as well. So I'm not, you know, I know something of that miraculous character, like uh, in the eyes are seemingly the Bishop Zamoraga and Juan Diego can be seen in very small detail, obviously. Um, and I know that some of the details are, are painted on there, but which ones exactly are? I think there is out there uh, the claim that it's the stars of the day on which uh, the event occurred, uh, but I can't speak to the veracity of that. I don't really know the answer. All right, very good. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Ralph in Muscatine, Iowa, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls. Simply pick up the phone and give us a call, and uh, we would love to hear from you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. Congratulations are going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Holy Family Radio in West Central Ohio is celebrating their 13th year with EWTN. They serve Lima, Glandorf, Ada, and Lepsick. And congratulations to Jeff Compton, longtime partner of ours, and his team at Holy Family Radio from all of us at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. And uh, you can also send us an email if you'd rather do that. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, every single day of the year except Good Friday when no Masses are offered. You can join us for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass at 8 o'clock Eastern Time right here from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel on the campus of EWTN. We've been doing it for decades, and we will continue to do it until our Lord returns. And you can even have that Mass sent straight to your email inbox. Simply log on to EWTN.com and click 
on subscribe. To the phones we go. First up, as advertised, Ralph in Muscatine, Iowa, listening on KTDC Radio. Ralph, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yes. Good afternoon, Colin. Good afternoon to you, too. Yeah. um, I heard one time somebody talked about, oh, some people refer to it as the scrupulosity of handling the particles of consecrated hosts. Mm Mm-hmm. And if there's these little particles on your fingers and people got to lick them off and all this kind of stuff. But the person who was in conference with this gave a reference, and I didn't get the reference. And I, I was wondering if you knew where those guidelines are written, if they are sure. written. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Um when the permission for hand communion was given in the uh, early 70s, the faculty, it might even have been as early as 69, I'm not sure the exact year, but around that period, uh, it became very quickly obvious that there needed to be a reaffirmation of the church's doctrine. This is not a legal point. This is not a point of housekeeping or fastidiousness. It's a point that flows from the doctrine of transubstantiation. And so the then cardinal uh, or, or congregation for the doctrine of the faith uh, issued an instruction on the, the particles that remain after, uh, after the, the bread has been consecrated, that each and every one is sacramentally Christ, whole and entire body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, this flows from the doctrine of transubstantiation, which says that by means of the consecration, the bread and then the wine, the substance is completely changed into the body and blood of Christ, is gone. What remains are the accidents. It remains, we could add speculatively then and logically, sustained by God that it might serve as a sacrament, meaning that we have a visible sign of an invisible truth that this is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and that wherever you find the body, the whole Christ is there. Wherever you find the blood, the whole Christ is there. So that's the teaching. So at what point do the particles cease to be Jesus? The answer is never. But obviously, if you can't see them, they're not there. So if you see a particle, what we would call a breadcrumb in common speech, you must treat it as Christ after the consecration. That's why it, the same document refers to if communion is to be given in the hand, then one should look in one's hand to see if there are any particles there. This is exactly what the priest does. He goes back to the altar, he takes the patent, and he puts some water on it and, ru- and, and rubs it around until the particles are dissolved and it, or that he can wash them into the ch- uh, chalice often enough and puts water in there to uh, get any drops of the precious blood and ultimately he consumes it. Or uh, if uh, that is done at the side ta- at the table uh, as often happens today, then that process is done there. In order to make sure that there are no particles or drops of the precious blood. And that's because of the doctrine of transubstantiation. So it's not scrupulosity to look, 
nor is it blameworthy if somebody who's doing their their best their best in the matter uh, looks at their palm, and uh, they to them it looks clear. The Lord will not hold them if if in fact there is something there, but it's a re- standard of reason. It's a standard of moral possibility, not absolute possibility. And so you shouldn't get scrupulous about it, but you should check to see as if, oh, are there any particles on the host on my hand? That is something everyone should do. And I can tell you at least one horror story, which, uh, of course, if you were in the 70s, you would have heard many of these of hosts being found in missalettes and on the floor. This was at a retreat house where I went on a retreat as a seminarian. Uh, There was a couple of priests there. And they were very sensitive to these matters. And they, we went into the sacristy to get ready for Mass. I was going to serve the Mass. And one of them said, do you feel something's wrong here? And the other one, yes, I do. And they opened a cabinet. And there, whoever had celebrated Mass there had had a complete disregard. And there were patents and ciboriums covered with quote-unquote breadcrumbs. But obviously, they sensed the presence of Christ by means of a grace, and so they purified that area. That impressed upon me the reality of the miracle of transubstantiation, that even then we say, oh, you know, it's still only bread, or it's bread and yes, it is, but I'm not going to be fastidious about this and be sensible and reasonable about it. Uh, it's real, uh, and that impressed that, uh, made that point to me. Thanks, Ralph. We appreciate the phone call today. 1977. What was? Is when the Holy See granted permission for the United States to receive in the hand. Okay. I think it might have been a little bit earlier in other places, but yeah. It was in the 70s. I do recall that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. You Canadian, you. Buster is in the great state of Kansas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Buster, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, my cousin called me a couple of nights ago and said that I could go gambling. I said, you know I don't gamble. And he said, well, the apostles did. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, the apostles casted lots for the replacement of Judas. And so my question is, is that was that gambling? <laughs> no, what they did is follow the example of what had been a couple places in the Old Testament where the casting of lots was a way of trying to discern God's will. And I think done by the high priesthood or by the apostles in this case, uh, it, was, it was an appeal to God to, to point them in the right direction. It's not something that is looked upon that fondly in the church today, and it's not ever done for that reason. The question of gambling gambling is a simple question. It's like the question of drinking or like the question of using medications that for your you know for your health. Uh, there are good uses and there are bad uses. Uh, there's the old adage, you know, everything in moderation and moderation in, in everything. And that is the church, at least the Catholic Church, I know some Protestant denominations frown greatly on Alabama, for which reason we have no lottery in this state. Uh, but there is no necessity, obviously, to you know buy a lottery ticket or to play a friendly game of poker 
or you're passing through Vegas to use the slot machines in the airport, something like that, and it's recreational, and it's not with a seriousness and a sort of a, uh, uh, a, a compulsion, like, I've got to do this, I've got to do this kind of thing. But it's recreational. That kind of usage, as, as social drinking that doesn't go into drunkenness, uh, is permissible. Uh, St. Paul teaches the, the, the message of Christian freedom. We have, the, we have the freedom to use the goods of the earth and the things of the earth to use them well, but not to use them evilly, and that has to be the moral standard there. So the church look at, looks at it in that way. And no, I wouldn't look to that passage as, as proof that you would gamble. I would say we would look at the long moral tradition of the church on matters like this. Has a little something to do with your means too, huh? Well, obviously, you you know, if you've got a lot of money and you lose a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, it means less than if that was your money to pay for your kid's lunch tomorrow. Right. And that that would be evil by by reason of this kind of excessive. It's excessive in the case, and so much of these kinds of applications are are circumstantially specific. So. For the poor to squander their money means more than the, the wealthy to do that, uh, even recreationally or otherwise. We head now to the great state of Iowa. Lee is listening on KMMK Radio. Lee, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Um, with all the talk going on uh, around the invalid uh, baptisms that happened, I believe, in Phoenix, mm-hmm. Um and if I understand it right from what I'm hearing, and I could be wrong, but if you were baptized at that particular time by that priest, you need to be rebaptized to be like to get married. Um, since hmm. it was an invalid baptism, and if that's the case, my question is: if you were baptized by that particular priest or any other priest that maybe made the same mistake, and you happen to die without knowing that, um, is is that a problem? Well, uh, to deal with that, let me deal with uh, with what wasn't really a question, but the, the background to it. Um, I'm not sure if in those cases there was also uh, cases in Detroit where I think a deacon had used a non uh, an invalid formula for baptism, you know, the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sp- Holy Spirit, or something. Uh, new age or feminist kind of stuff. Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. Sanctifier, yeah. something like that, by their missions as opposed to their names. I mean, Jesus baptized in the name of the Father, not in the, you know, in the title of their missions of the persons. Uh, then it would be an absolute baptism. There may be cases of people coming in from non-Christian denominations where there are doubts there can be done a conditional if you are not baptized i baptize you in the name of the father and the son and of the holy spirit that would be a conditional baptism now in the end those questions will be left uh, obviously in the case of the un, uh, of those who believe they are baptized but are not uh, and that should be factually true something they may not be able to prove one way or the other. I think if somebody has a doubt, it's worth researching, not immediately leaping to the, uh, to the sacramental recourse. Uh, but, you know, I've heard of people who find out, uh, I think even was the Detroit case with somebody, oh, here's a video of your baptism. Let's look at it. And they saw, whoa, what's going on here? Um, 
you find you could always ask witnesses of the baptism was it you know what happened and find out exactly what happened and get it addressed that way but to the question itself i think we can leave that to the mercy of god which the church does for the unbaptized babies whether aborted or otherwise and i think we can't know the answer to the question we know what was told us to do to baptize uh, so we leave that to the mercy of God, and I think we could expect from God a good result of some kind. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Randall writes in: When our loved ones die, do they go to heaven, hell, purgatory, or do they just sleep in the hope of rising again? <laughs> well, they're judged, and they go to one of three destinations: heaven or hell, being the terminal points; purgatory, being the temporal place of purification for the just who are not yet perfect, since nothing per imperfect will enter in, John tells us, at the end of his uh, book of Revelation. So that's, that's where they will go, and our Lord will, will tell us at our judgment, is appointed to man to die once, and then the judgment, and that will occur at the hour of our death. And when he comes again, it will occur for those who have not yet died at that point in the consummation of all things. And that's the last judgment. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Give us a call. Jay wants to know, if you go to confession and forget a sin, do you have to go back to confession? And in general, how often do I need to go to confession? Well, the church... I I being Jay, not me. Oh, well, yeah. (laughs) We'll talk about that after the show, of course. But... uh, I was speaking specifically of Wednesday <laughs> night. <laughs> Any case, um, so what was the question? <laughs> if you forget a sin, do you have yes. to go back to confession? Yes, it's worse than if you forget a question, of course. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons the church says we should make an examination of conscience is that we don't forget a sin, at least not a grave sin. Uh, Whether we review the Ten Commandments or we use almost every Catholic prayer book I've ever seen has an examination of conscience in it based on the commandments or the writings of the saints or whatever. Um, And so that's a help to our memory. Even doing that, we are human and we'll forget things. And one, a sin forgotten having done sort of a due diligence examination of conscience. um, I think in many good people, they go to confession either regularly by a schedule uh, or when they know with certainty or at least they they think they believe they've committed moral sin. But in, in any case, if we forget a sin through no intention, no effort at fraud, as it were, then it's covered by the by the by the absolution. Then the church says Christ imposed an obligation for the church to 
relieve, to absolve, to forgive, or to retain. And with that is the ob- obligation of confessing one's sins. So we have a precept that we have to comply with. It doesn't ma- change that we are absolved uh, in that because our, our mere humanity. But let's say we forgot something that was, oh, a grave sin. Venial sins, we're not even obliged to confess those. But if it was a grave sin, then we could just mention the next time. It's not something we have to run back to confession for. But the next time we regularly go by need or by uh, our, our normal practice, uh, then, then mention this in. Uh, I know I'm absolved. I just wanted to say in the last confession, you know, I mentioned that I had done this and I... I I understand that was I, I took it to be a grave sin on my part. If it's not if it's a venial sin, we're not obliged to do that. And I think a lot of people get in the mistake of thinking, well, all, every venial sin has to be confessed. No, every grave sin in number and in kind is best as we can tell. Uh, you know, if you have a particular sin and you're doing a lot, then you, you try to get in the ballpark, and that may be as close as you can get in terms of number. And that's especially true if you're making a general confession of a long period of time or returning to the church. You know, this is not a mathematical accounting of your sins by which, you know, some agency is going to come in and ding you if you don't get your number exactly right. You're doing a good faith job of determining these are the sins I did and how many times I did it. And that gets harder the longer it's been from from the last year conf- last confession. So a regular confession... Um, I think it was John Paul II who said uh, about once a month he encouraged that. Uh, some of the saints, have, I believe, have encouraged every couple of weeks. John Paul himself went every day before he celebrated Mass. His confessor, of course, was was handy there in the, in the Apostolic Palace in the Vatican. Uh, but you might talk to your confessor uh, if he's a devout and pious priest and... and get his sense of it. I think every couple weeks, if you're able, every month, uh, if if that's possible. Um, and, and I don't know that you go any longer just because it gets more difficult to examine your conscience uh, and to remember things. And also, it's not just about confessing the sin and being freed from the eternal penalty of it in the case of grave sin, but the grace needed to avoid sinning in general and any counsel and enlightenment that the confessor might give you. Uh, it's a spiritual medicine, and that's, uh, that's how we should approach it, as spiritual medicine. Saying to the doctor, the divine physician, through the, his minister, this is what I did, now I need medicine for this, for my humanity, for my sinfulness, for my weaknesses. So when they give you your theology hat, Mm-hmm. Do they give you a little philosophy beanie with it? Well, it's underneath that. Yeah, that's what I know. thought. And there's no propeller on it. Or no, 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 you can't have a propeller. No. No, no. Marcus wants to know, how can God's nature be described through the principle of non-contradiction when he is the author of logic? <laughs> well, he's the author of truth. I guess logic is a, a human, reasonable grasp of the truth. So in that sense, he transcends all the human sciences, which are limited by the nature of human beings, which he created, which are finite and incapable of the most profound mysteries, especially the divine ones. So I think the standard is, uh, is, a, is not a correct one 
applied to God, since uh, we're applying human rationality to something which is well beyond the human ability to grasp in its full extent, as it were, and that is the mystery of the of the of divinity, much less even the mystery how the divine nature is three persons uh, in that nature. Uh, so I think it transcends all of that, and that's I think one of the things we'll appreciate the more intellectual of us uh, in this life will appreciate in heaven is the satisfaction of all these kinds of questions, because in seeing God we will have the answer to. Uh, you know, to, to, to all of our questions. He is the answer, the ultimate answer. But that doesn't mean the less, the, the instrumental answers are not important, and we will understand those in him in ways which we never could in this life. You know, and Holy Mother Church, in her wisdom, has always um, incorporated um, philosophy into any uh, substantial study of theology. And um, it's, it's amazing the more you study philosophy to learn that even in, in cultures that had no uh, real concept of God as we know him, mm-hmm. uh, still those who chose to think about deeper things, right. ultimately always it always led them to a description pretty close to what we know God to be. <laughs> Right, and certainly of those, the most uh, profound one was Aristotle. You could say he's the father of logic. He's remotely the father of all sciences. Uh, He had the physics, which was one of his divisions of of natural knowledge, which was a a natural knowledge as of his day from which he derived the uh, uh, understanding of uh, metaphysics, the things which go beyond... The, the, the descriptive material things that we witness to the, the, the nature of being itself. And he is the one who first arrived at the idea that when you look at all the causation in the world, it's not self-causing. There must be an infinite cause who is the cause of all the other causes uh, in the universe. And so... That is a philosophical definition, really, of what God is. And remarkably, this is what he, how he described himself to Moses. I am who am. Mm-hmm. I am the one who is essence and existence infinitely and eternally, and which all other essences and existences participate in by my will and not by their own. Uh, next stop is Harrison Township, Michigan. Agnes is a first-time caller listening on Ave Maria Radio. Agnes, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling because I need some advice mm-hmm. on how to answer a friend who says um, our spirit goes with God after we die, so no one should care about the body, whether it gets buried or or cremated, or whatever happens mm-hmm. to it. He said the flesh is of no avail, or the body is of no avail, but the flesh, or but our spirit is worthy. Um, I was wondering how I could answer her, or show her that sure. the body should be buried respectfully. And Yeah, well, I, 
I mean, the argument uh, that the, the church has, of course, is that the body has shared in, the, in baptism. Uh, the body is not distinct from the soul. Uh, this, if it were, we would be angels. Uh, and the soul is not distinct from the body. If it were, uh, you know, we could also be, would be either animals or angels. But no, we are the rational animal, the animal who thinks, who reasons, who wills, uh, who decides, who judges and all the things that we can say about human beings. So there is an innate innateness in, uh, in the human being, which is described uh, in a, a sort of a, a symbolic visual way in the, the breath of God into the clay in the book of Genesis. That we are not just ma- clay, we are not just breath, spirit, we are both. And that's why the church shows great respect respect for the body that was baptized, respect for the body that received the Eucharist during its lifetime, respect for the body that was confirmed, uh, respect for the body that uh, through the, uh, the blessing of the sacrament of marriage gave, gift, gave new life, brought new life into the world, life which could be itself baptized and share in the blessings of, of faith and, and, and of the church. And so it, it, it makes the body a much more noble thing. The idea of a split between the body and spirit is actually a very old error. Um, n- not just the Gnostics, but some other groups who, who put an emphasis on one or the other. That it's, oh, it's either all spirit and the body was just a throwaway. That's maybe not a direct quote, but you use that language, and that could be applied to Gnosticism that the body is not to be regarded in any way. And on the other hand, uh, it gave some the excuses in the Middle Ages. Some groups thought, well, that means that I can do anything in the body I want. I can sin, I can uh, you know, debauch, I can drink, get drunk, all, because the body is pointless. In my soul, I'm spiritual. And this is our world today. My body doesn't matter. I'll change it. It's malleable. I'll take, go to the doctor and I'll change it or I'll, or I'll do this. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's only my spirit and the reality of my mind that's important. No, for the church, it's the whole of man, body and soul, and that's the reverence that is owed to it. So I don't know if that argument has any w- would have any traction or not. If the person is a Catholic, they should know that it's not the will of the church that our, our bodies be, if they're cremated, they should be in a sacred place like a columbarium, uh, in a Catholic cemetery or a little parish columbarium area or, or in blessed ground somewhere. Uh, that's the church's idea, that the, the soul go, may go to God before, for its judgment, as we talked about earlier, but the body should, is available for good or for ill for the last judgment as well. And it's not, um, it's not just a vessel cast off with uh, no value at all. God bless you, Agnes. We appreciate the phone call. Debauch, the verb. Don't know that I've ever heard it. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, you heard it today. 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Still time for your phone calls on Open Line Friday. Brian writes in, Can I attend the liturgy at an Anglican or Greek Orthodox church in place of Catholic Mass? Is it the same Eucharist? 
The uh, Anglican Church, no, because the church doesn't recognize his orders, so it's not a mass. Um, it has the similarities externally to the mass, but the church doesn't recognize that uh, anything takes place there and doesn't recognize uh, the priesthood or episcopacy of the Anglican Church as being, uh, as being priests and bishops. Uh, and that would also then apply to their diaconate as well. The Orthodox Church, yes, uh, the Orthodox Church is, is, is a church. It's not in communion with the, with the Catholic Church. It has all the marks of, of what constitutes a church in terms of its apostolicity, in terms of its faith, although there are obviously differences, doctrinal differences between the East and the West on some matters, uh, and uh, the, the sacramental life. So, <coughs> uh, it, is, it is a church. Now, there are rules for ecumenical communion. Uh, there is in the Code of Canon Law the rules for that, and that is that ordinarily a Catholic goes only and receives, uh, goes to Mass and receives communion in a Catholic rite, which means the Roman rite or the Maronite rite or the Melkite rite or Ruthenian rite, those that are in communion with, uh, with Rome. But one can, by exception, if you are traveling someplace where there is a, where there is an Orthodox Church of some, uh, of somebody, uh, you know, Russian Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox, or Coptic Orthodox, then you could uh, legitimately receive communion there. You could receive anointing of the sick if you were dying. The question would be, would they give it to you? Uh, they, I think those churches would probably be stricter on, than Rome is on this, um, and I, I can't speak to the individual cases. So you could, in those kinds of circumstances where you, do, where you don't have access to a minister of a church in communion with Rome, in other words, one of the rites or churches of the Catholic Church, uh, it would not be something you could hear in America in a place where there are you know, the Greek Orthodox here, or the Russian Orthodox there, and then here's the Roman Church, and maybe there's an, even a, uh, one of the Eastern Rite churches down the block. No, there's no reason for it there. Uh, but if in extraordinary circumstances where you have no other access to the sacraments, you could if they would permit it. Um, be sure to join us for the Encore of the World Over. That's Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And then you can catch it again Sunday afternoon at 3 a.m. Eastern Time. That's the World Over Encore this weekend, Saturday, 10 p.m., Sunday, 3 a.m., all Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Judy in Lafayette, Louisiana, listening at EWTN.com. Judy, you are on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I was sent a text from my daughter. Um, she has left the church. Um, and uh, she sent me a quote from Leviticus 20. Um, mm -hmm. if, a man, if a man lies car carnally with a woman who is a slave, betrothed to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, an inquiry shall be held. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, and and she and, and she sent this um, this the text through it through TikTok. This man was quoting this, and you know was saying you know if God why would God allow this woman to be uh, a woman to be treated like this? And um, 
I don't know how to answer <laughs> that. Well, for starters, you can't apply Christian principles to what we would say on that today to that example. Remember, uh, Israel was a people in formation. Uh, they didn't have the advantages of grace, of Christianity. We're told in the gospel, for example, uh, well, we know historically that God tolerated polygamy among the kings. He tolerated slavery. Uh, even St. Paul had to deal with this issue because it was uh, a disease, if you will, a moral disease that people didn't understand the reasons against it in the ancient world. It seemed uh, natural, and by a certain sense, as Aquinas would say, uh, it was the law of nations to have slaves, and this doesn't mean it was morally right. But in the context of those times, it's what people thought were right, and they were in error, but nonetheless. So with time, we've come to an ever greater knowledge, some things through the revelation of Christ himself. You know, he says regarding you, you know, you heard that it was all right for a man to divorce his wife. But I say to you, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. Later, St. Paul would say regarding slavery that he would have the slaves be treated as a brother or sister. And eventually, when the empire was converted to Christianity, slavery was done away with because the church could do that, could influence the, the government to do that. So these things had a historical development and God, in working with us, has been very tolerant at different times of our, of our ability to conform to the moral law, revealing ever more profoundly the extent of our moral obligation to our brothers and sisters. And so Israel was, as St. Paul says, the, old, the covenant, the old covenant, was a tutor. It was teaching them about justice. So a lot of the things that you find in Leviticus and elsewhere you know, the stoning of homosexuals or the stoning of adulterers. We know how our Lord handled the, stone, the desire to stone the adulterer. He didn't say, this is not a just punishment. He said, let, you, let those among you who are without sin throw the first stone. He was teaching an evangelical way to deal with that because he was bringing the law of charity. And so... The, the, the tutoring that went on with Israel, we have to take things in the context of that. But we ourselves, as Christians, should be seeking to live up to the evangelical law, which Christ himself is the example. And we don't always do that. The church hasn't always do that. It's arguably said the church doesn't do that today or in any era yet. But by the end of the world, we hope that we will have some semblance of that. Uh, I'm not sure we ever will. Our, our Lord said to the people of Jerusalem, uh, to the women who cried over him, if they do this to the green wood, what will they do with the dry? We're the dry wood. Uh, we don't deserve much uh, good care. But the Lord is calling us to give that care to others and that, and that love of others and to overcome, to see beyond mere justice, to love and mercy. And so that's the message of the New Testament. If she's rebelling against the church because what God did in trying to bring the Israelites and the and uh, of uh, out of darkness to the light, uh, then she's rebelling against something which uh, is no more, as far as the Christian is concerned, 
Uh, she should be looking at, uh, at the witness of the saints because the evils of Catholics and Christians doesn't diminish the, the beauty of Christ's teaching, doesn't dis- diminish the examples of the saints, doesn't diminish the glories of literature, of architecture and art, which give glory to God over the centuries. Uh, these are the things which speak of the truth about God and Christ and the church and the beauty of the sacraments in the Christian life. Those who witness negatively to those things, they will have their penalty. But we should use the, the po- these good things uh, to witness to the church and not drag up 3,000-year-old uh, uh, practices which God was tolerating evil among the Israelites to lead them progressively to a deeper understanding of the truth. And Aiden writes in, How is it possible for the church to offer plenary indulgences that take away time in purgatory? Because uh, all power in heaven and earth I give to you, go forth and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Uh, The church is Christ. It's the mystical body. We know that from St. Paul. Uh, And the apostles are the the prophets, teachers, uh, and uh, governors, princes of the church. They they rule, they teach, and they sanctify. And so that's where, that's where that comes from, and that's what uh, they do. Well, we've come to an end of another EWTN week of Open Line. Again, congratulations to Colin Donovan, our sort of newly minted member of the Pontifical Marian Academy. <laughs> Delayed announcement, long-time appointment. <laughs> and uh, we hope that you have a tremendous weekend on behalf of our host, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. Enjoy you to, or enjoy you, how am I doing? Imploring you to continue to enjoy this uh, month of the Immaculate Heart of Mary and enjoy your weekend. Get to Mass and uh, be with the ones that you love in worship of the one who loves us most. Until we get together on Monday, God bless.